Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs from Muhammad. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please, practice excellent self and community care while listening. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Anjali Nathupadia, and I'm academically trained as a political scientist, a philosopher, and a professor. However, I'm now teaching in community. That way, I can infuse what I share with my experiences in activism and healing for over two decades, bringing in ancestral wisdom and an unapologetic commitment to the collective liberation of all living beings. One of my areas of expertise is epistemology, or specifically the politics of knowledge, discerning what's real from illusion. A little heads up before we dive into this week's video, if you've been influenced by, say, centrist Democrats and or the corporate media, you might find yourself wanting to write off some of what I share as illegitimate. If that happens, I invite you to notice it. What I'm about to share may be a lot to take in, so I encourage you to consider what I'm sharing. Of course, we don't have to agree with all things or even any of the things necessarily, but if you imagine yourself to be intellectually confident or perceptually confident, then a little thought experiment from a philosopher probably wouldn't be too intimidating, right? So. Have you noticed that the term conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist gets weaponized in all kinds of directions by myriad actors, agents, and entities? Then millions of people obediently look the other direction. How sad to move through the world like that, disrespecting our capacity to gauge what's valid independently from what the status quo's thought leaders and influencers have sold us. Our bullshit meters atrophying because we'd never want to be judged as being that out there. Yet the thing is, wisdom allows no such bypassing. Guess what? 
We don't need to write ideas off by some default when we're discerning. Who's afraid of a conspiracy theory? Does a stranger online just need to say the words reptilian or alien to elicit some kind of Pavlovian training to look the other way? I'll bet y'all are down to shed any of that grooming that you may still have inside to make room for deeper diving into the truths of suppressed scandals. Let's put our awareness to good use and talk about the limiting function that the term conspiracy theory performs. I dare you to give no fucks about the mainstream smoke and mirrors show and to instead perceive with eyes open. When we get the corporate media, PR, and academic fads out of our lives, where might a decolonial feminist read on conspiracies take us? I'll take you through how I vet a few currently trending so-called conspiracy theories. Just wait and see how much more clear our knowing is when we set down the centrist Democrat versus libertarian versus green versus leftist political theater. Now, some of y'all might be thinking, Anjali, are you saying that we can't just easily cast aside everything that's ever been anonymously trashed online as a quote conspiracy end quote? Well, how about we run down some historical examples of U.S. imperialist horrors that got called, quote, conspiracy theories, end quote, to discourage any public scrutiny whatsoever. And then y'all can let me know what patterns you recognize. So for folks who are marginally intellectually or perceptually confident. Again, I imagine that this kind of thought experiment or two wouldn't be too intimidating. And if the idea of joining me down these rabbit holes feels scary, well, happy Halloween. So what's another group of people that often get gaslit as mad like lunatics, so-called conspiracy theorists? So what exactly is a conspiracy theory? Let's look at this definition from Dr. Noam Chomsky to understand the term. In his book, Necessary Illusions, Thought Control in Democratic Societies, he says that they're used as a, quote, familiar reflex when it is necessary to prevent thought and protect institutions from scrutiny, end quote. As in, these are words that are deployed like weapons against us to keep us in the box and not really leaning into alternatives. In Manufacturing Consent, Dr. Chomsky says that conspiracy theory is a stop-think phrase. A stop-think phrase. As in, when something gets labeled a conspiracy theory, we've been trained to not think about it. In that way, the phrase is keeping us right limited in terms of directions that our curiosity could potentially go. It's harder to make sense of things that we're not even allowed to talk about, like so-called conspiracy theories. Who and what would benefit from that? Let's unpack and differentiate what's going on when this term gets used. 
So the field of what gets called conspiracy theories is even more ridiculed when tabloids associate it with Elvis sightings and other fluff that's politically inconsequential. Most people's understanding of conspiracy theories has also been similarly depoliticized. So you may think that talking about aliens is cute or weird, but might not realize that the focus on, say, UFOlogy around military bases distracts people from a grounded curiosity about strange things happening around U.S. military bases. You see how that right sort of diversionary campaign could work? There's a rich history related to Wright Roswell, of course, that we could talk about here. So before we move forward, I would like to share a little bit of an invitation to reflect. Who have you seen use the word conspiracy theory? What were they talking about? Who were they talking about? What agenda was being served with that weaponized language? You see, sometimes people use it to distance themselves, to bolster their perceived legitimacy. Have you ever heard something like that before? It's like, I don't want to be associated with those people. And it's also important to name here how we're all differentially at risk in terms of our proximity to so-called conspiracy theories, because it can be super othering to get associated with them. And while, for example, most BIPOC already have such substantial othering to survive that it might seem sensible to not want to right, heap any more of that onto our plate than is already there, the constraint is stifling regardless. So to be clear, it is important to acknowledge that people are differentially situated to being othered based off of various aspects of our social location. As in, individuals differentially bear the brunt of those kinds of pathologizing consequences. And there are plenty of documented archives, right, historically and right now, of non-consensual institutionalization, family separation, forced treatment, and the like that makes this apparent when some folks are perceived as beyond the pale in terms of our perception. And so to give a little bit of context in terms of what initially really got me curious about this topic, I could share that taking it back to when I was in high school in an AP U.S. history class, one of the first books that I ever bought in my life for a research project was actually this text, Acid Dreams, the complete social history of LSD or acid, the CIA, the 60s and beyond. And in that text, I learned that for one, CIA cover-ups are not just history, they're absolutely current affairs. And that declassified <clears throat> documents and whistleblowers consistently demonstrate scandals from the CIA, from other governmental agencies, more recently the NSA to be sure. So corporate and state scandals, frankly. This is actually a little bit more the rule than the exception. 
But if someone has been seduced by a deadly faith in the mainstream and in oppressive institutions, this may be unclear. It's somewhat akin to the phrase, quote, if you're one step ahead of the game, they call you a genius. If you're two steps ahead of the game, they call you crazy. Are any of y'all familiar with that phrase? So I actually have a little bit of a question for y'all. Have you heard of cloud warfare? So Operation Popeye occurred during the American War on Vietnam from 1967 to 1972. And it's another powerful epistemological experiment for us to think through. So a technology called cloud seeding was used to extend the monsoon season over the Ho Chi Minh Trail in particular. So during the American Imperial War on Vietnam, cloud warfare was used in Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Okinawa, Guahan, the Philippines, and elsewhere. Predictably, the U.S. Department of Defense denied using weather modification as a tactical weapon for decades. Yet, it's almost as if we're not even really allowed to think about climate warfare, even if there are international legal conventions outlining the use or prohibition of this very real technology. And this is even according to climatologists. So when I was doing labor organizing for years at the University of Hawaii with a colleague who is a meteorologist, shout out Tom, some of y'all know who he is, I asked him about what's often written off as a conspiracy theory, HARP specifically in Alaska. This is often ridiculed out of hand as an obvious conspiracy theory. And you know what? His response was exactly what I had anticipated. He laughingly demonstrated disinterest and even being open to curiosity around the topic without any demonstrated awareness of the history of climate warfare, which is there in plain sight if you know enough to do a search for it. So the U.S. military has used cloud warfare for over half a century, and yet there's so much ignorance in the face of that historical archive. Also, my buddy, this climatologist, had never even looked into climate warfare. If he hadn't made a good faith effort to try to understand, how could he possibly know what he was talking about? This is quite typical with many academics, I say as a former academic. So one pro tip here related to how researchers talk is the following. It's not that there might not be important connections or history for us to take seriously. However, it may be that there hasn't been adequate institutional funding or support, particularly for controversial research questions. So up through today, the mainstream in the U.S. acts like weaponizing weather is a conspiracy theory. And again, this comes up all the time if y'all hear about, right, this HARP project in Alaska. What's heartbreaking to me about this is the way that that obliviousness in the U.S., 
continues to ignore very real imperial violence done globally. So my interest in this particular topic was especially piqued when I spent a few months in Vietnam a couple of years ago and learned so much on the ground there about the American war that I had definitely never been exposed to in the US. The memorials to murdered children and art exhibits of survivors of US atrocities there paint a very different picture of the level of evil that the US federal government is capable of than I've ever seen broached in US corporate media or any public school curricula in the settler colonial US. Are those Vietnamese activists who are still to this day fighting for reparations from the US government conspiracy theorists? 50 years later, after some of these documents have gotten declassified, truth tellers are still getting ridiculed. So I really invite us to see through lines from this particular example that are related more broadly to the politics of knowledge for those of us that are open to paying attention. And again, here, if you hadn't previously heard of Operation Popeye, please look it up after you're done with this video. I hope you really ask yourself why that wasn't a part of your education. Hopefully it can soften any arrogance that might have snuck into our perception and seed humility. So for another current example to bring into the present, if y'all have not read The Intercept's expose titled George Bush, Barack Obama, and the CIA Torture Cover-Up, that's another potent and unfortunately devastating example of how current so many of these US federal governmental cover-ups are. And so to take it back, another infamous historical example that we could look to is around MKUltra. Have any of y'all heard of that? So this was a highly classified CIA project from 1953 to 1973. So MKUltra was a 20-year-long CIA mind control and psychological warfare program that got written off for decades as what? a so-called conspiracy theory. And again, if folks would like to look to one compilation of some exhaustive research, mining thousands of pages of declassified documents related to MKUltra, please do check out that text, Acid Dreams. And so when I was 20, an ex of mine taught me so much about MKUltra, Operation Paperclip, and other clandestine military history. For those of us that were unapologetic nerds that went out of our way to learn above and beyond just what was in the core curricula that we had been exposed to within our education. And so we can see here even decades after that experiment, and even after governmental documents got declassified and it was in the public record, still truth tellers were getting ridiculed. And so, for example, my ex when I was 20 and in college that taught me about right MK Ultra in particular was consistent 
consistently made fun of by their family and by other folks since they hadn't gone to college. They weren't able to articulate some of this history, say, in the same way that I was able to as someone formally studying to be a political scientist. And so it was tragic for me to witness the way that right conversations got shut down around this astoundingly well-documented federal governmental scandal. It was written off for decades. And how, of course, again, by also delegitimating people that even engaged in conversations about MKUltra as what conspiracy theorists. It's incredible how easily, right, so many people in the mainstream can get hoodwinked by U.S. governmental agencies to look the other direction. And so that really merits, right, us learning from moving forward, especially, right, if you've ever witnessed someone or something getting bullied using this terminology, I really invite us to turn on our superpowers of discernment. Uh, and so a uh, more contemporary publication related to this specific scandal is actually an article that I would like to invite your attention to that came out in Wired within the past couple of years. And it's titled, My Father Says He's a Targeted Individual. Maybe We All Are. And so the author, Jean Guerrero, is telling the story of her father in this particular article, a man who said he was subjected to clandestine psychological operations, and a man who even she, his very daughter, pathologized. So without falling into the realm of speculation, I'm curious around what some of the broader through lines are that are relevant for us to observe in this kind of story of someone that absolutely could have been tested on through MKUltra or another one of the CIA's experiments in psychological warfare during that historical time period. So we can see here in this storytelling, someone who is making a good faith effort to be compassionate to her father, to be understanding, and yet even in spite of those good intentions, her view of her father read as deeply disrespectful. So using the language of delusions, using pathologizing and medicalizing language, the not-so-person-centered language of calling someone an addict, which in journalism is really looked down upon. Um, and unfortunately, right, topping all of that off with quite a colonial mentality. So let's peel back the layers of what's going on here. Why would someone be dismissive of a family member who was revealing a very vulnerable story and concern that they might have been subjected to governmental psychological warfare, right? We know this happened, again, to thousands of people historically, but so many folks in the face of someone saying, I am a survivor, I was victimized, I was one of those guys, seem to have a really hard time being able to perceive what quite plausibly might be an honest testimony in front of them. 
So if someone's trying to make a good faith effort to understand someone else's story, but they still end up othering them in this right way that's all wrapped up in the language of calling someone a conspiracy theorist, why might that be? And especially if that person has lots of evidence to substantiate what otherwise could get labeled as an implausible story. So one relational dynamic that might be at play when people talk shit on others as allegedly conspiracy theorists involves this notion of guilt by association. For some people, this shows up as a fear of being delegitimated. So if you empathize with someone who's been delegitimated, particularly when cognitive dissonance is present. So invalidating somebody else can often serve to shield you from repercussions. Could be personal, maybe professional, relational, or otherwise. Unsurprisingly, this can be an impediment to learning and to connection with other people. It can be hard to witness other people's stories when the mainstream society doesn't go there with us. So to back up even further, to pause and to ask, hang on a second, where are the spaces where we even hear people delegitimating conspiracy theories and so-called conspiracy theorists? Well, when it comes to this particular article, right, Wired Magazine, it's important to notice that key detail of where this story is being told, right? It's a tech bro periodical. It's not exactly liberatory. They're not even trying to be. It's not exactly a bastion of decolonial feminism. So we can actually anticipate their biases from a mile away anticipating what will and won't be included as a part of their storytelling. So from a techno-fundamentalist's eyes, of course her father would be an unreliable, so-called mentally ill man with untrustworthy hallucinations. To tech bros, nothing is sacred, right? To tech bros, right, anything interdimensionally or that could be considered specious by mainstream sources is very readily going to be invalidated because when people's thinking is so conformist, again, we can anticipate that from a mile away. What else might be at play here? So false consciousness is alive and well on the part of folks who really quickly can label others as so-called conspiracy theorists. For example, we know that the surveillance state is real and that the US federal government doesn't exist to keep us safe. So would our animal instinct that intends to keep us safe actually be served by learning only up to a certain point about a particular topic and then subsequently burying our heads in the sand, getting to the point where we might be mildly terrified, but then failing to right arm ourselves with whatever follow through could actually handle the situation. So not doing anything about the problem at hand, but just backing up and pretending like we didn't just learn about the oppressive injustices that we've just learned about, like MKUltra or the US government psychological warfare. And this is, again, from half a century ago, let alone in the day and age of psychometrics that we're currently engaged in right now. So it's a faulty 
distortion of our survival instinct to get, to get caught up in burying our heads in the sand in that kind of way just because a topic might be a little intimidating or unpopular. Have you noticed this problematic in your own life? How do these opportunities play out? Finding out about something that might be scary if it's new to you might feel intimidating or overwhelming. It's important to name those things and to be truthful about such feelings if you or I or someone else is feeling them whenever this might be the case. So I could even share one personal story about this with a Swiss man that I was just starting to do one-on-one -on -one work with who actually joked at the beginning of his first session with me saying, I was thinking a minute ago, why am I gonna spend a lot of money to meet with you and to realize that I have even more work to do to potentially make my life harder? And one takeaway there is that some people choose to cap their learning if they don't want the increased responsibility that might accompany a deepened consciousness. Perhaps you may have even observed something similar in your life, wanting to share information with somebody that you care about, yet if they were to internalize that information within their life, Sometimes people shut down because they realize that they might have to make substantial changes in their lives if their worldview expands in that way. And I could share another personal story on that front. My brother actually sharing to me once in a conversation, I don't want to hear anything from you that would make me think differently of my wife. As in, I was being told that I wasn't allowed to say anything that would potentially encourage him to grow, to learn, to expand. And if somebody is married to someone who might be, say, stuck in a little bit of right a trauma cycle or response, possibly stagnating in certain ways, it might not take much to challenge their paradigm. Even mentioning that I had just, say, attended a conference could potentially seen, be seen as intimidating. So question, have you ever tried to share something important with someone and had them be pretty non-responsive or maybe get really intimidated or resistant? If so, how did you feel about their response? Did it impact you moving forward from that moment? For example, specifically, did it rain on your parade, so to speak, or limit your enthusiasm in sharing moving forward, potentially discouraging you from subsequently sharing more expansively with others? So in both of those little anecdotes that I shared, y'all might have been thinking about cognitive dissonance, right? And did you know that cognitive dissonance is actually a neural injury? So it impacts decision-based action and rational thinking. As a matter of fact, cognitive dissonance has to be dissolved for trauma recovery. And that dissolution isn't a quick process. If you're somewhat unfamiliar with this, please learn more about how cognitive dissonance works and how it could be working in your life or in the lives of people that you love or care about. Because I noticed the way that cognitive dissonance shuts down our capacity to consciousness raise on a regular basis. 
Exactly right. Felicia sharing, yes, totally rained on my parade and I questioned myself. So isn't it interesting to be able to reflect on some of those anecdotes to notice Ooh, am I being limited by this? And if so, is that something that I'm okay with? Or is that something that I might want to right, see if I can shift or move energy around? And then what does that mean more broadly, right? If we've had some of these individual anecdotes that we can speak to, that we can reflect on from our own lives, what does that mean more broadly? And another note on this topic, let's ground right some of this theorizing in an example. We know that the surveillance state is real and that the US federal government right, isn't necessarily going to be doing anything about that anytime soon to be able to support everyday individuals such as yourself or myself being protected from that intrusion into our privacy on the part of for sure tech companies, and then also governmental agencies and institutions. So here's the thing. If we end the surveillance state, we don't have to fear it anymore. This is an option. We can collectively brainstorm courses of action when we move from individual fear and denial into a more activated stance when we begin to lay out possibilities that are available to us. And then we can realize that it's not in the service of us or our loved ones to pretend to be ignorant to what we actually know. How helpful to parse out those constituent parts. If we know enough to know that there's something to be contended with here, then we could also ask ourselves what the responsibility is that goes along with that awareness. To not disrespect our perception by pretending like we don't know something that we know, whether it's related to, say, governmental corruption, the surveillance state, or something else entirely. How are we going to eschew our capacity as agents to do something about it? Perhaps you may have even observed something similar in your life in wanting to share, but then actually having your worldview's expansion shut down because of some of these sort of relational dynamics that we've been getting into, the responses of other folks that might be feeling conflicted, whether it's at a conscious level or even potentially a little unconscious. Because we know that many folks do just stop questioning at a certain point, not growing their curiosity or their openness beyond particular guideposts that have been laid out for them. Or maybe it gets siloed into openness, but in other areas that might not be so consequential. So being down to learn, being really into curiosity, but in areas that might be lovely, baking, cooking, another hobby, but that might not have the same kind of life and death importance for us as communities, as cultures, for all of humanity, for all of the earth, right? So maybe not daring to have depth in that way that is actually available to us. And again, perhaps some of our loved ones did go there once and then maybe they got bullied or they could have gotten shut down consistently. 
And if those sort of wounds have festered, right, and have not been attended to with tenderness, with care, with intentionality, then it makes sense, frankly, that, right, folks might not have the same sense of access to those powerful and promising parts of themselves and their potential. So many folks can anticipate that there are going to be consequences to address right around the corner if we're going to stay in integrity. So going through the motions within the proverbial matrix or the belly of the beast in the machine, in the mainstream culture, right, uh, is something that can really get threatened when we hear something about, say, the breadth and the depth of the U.S. empire, of U.S. settler colonialism, perhaps both simultaneously. And perhaps one of our loved ones didn't know whatever that might have been beforehand. Say it wasn't a part of their core curricula. So perhaps they're well-educated institutionally anyways, yet they're not familiar with certain things that could have gotten written off as so-called conspiracy theories. That might get in the way of their ease in doing the Pledge of Allegiance or in standing up for the Star-Spangled Banner before some spectator sport, for instance. They may not feel as comfortable copying what folks are doing around them anymore. There will be reverberations when we take seriously this process of deepening our awareness of raising our consciousness. And to keep it real, it might get more challenging than that, depending upon our openness to continue to commit to our learning. This is real relationally. It can be evocative for other folks if we're just being ourselves in the world and other folks see that as threatening to their sense of stasis or to their baseline because we do all perceive somewhat differently. We don't all start in the same place. We're not all ending in the same place. So what does this mean when we come together and relate? So something else that to me is really important for us to attend to here and that might be quite controversial, so I invite you to just stick with me, right, and to play with this thought experiment if you're down, um, is a little bit of a, right, invitation related to the way that people talk about the September 11th, 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center. So uh, do you think that some part of the U.S. federal government might have played a role in the September 11th, 2001 attacks on the Twin Towers and Building 7? If so, why? Or if so, why not? Let's actually break this down, right? So folks in even hearing this question might have immediate responses like, no, that's definitely a conspiracy theory, or of course that's what happened. So again, if we're really going to refine our skills of discernment, let's really unpack how we even engage in that process of discretion. So even just a couple of little invitations on that front. So again, I invite you to take a deep breath. Many of you coming from multiple directions might not like what I'm about to share. 
So first off, it's important to name that the U.S. federal government has a sustained history of massacring civilians from the U.S. so-called Indian Wars that inaugurated the creation of the U.S. as a settler colony to the continued imperialism fueling this empire. This is obvious. So again, we know that the CIA, the FBI have prominently assassinated people and engaged in targeted killing campaigns domestically and abroad to fulfill their statecraft objectives. So the notion of the U.S. federal government, some arm, some agency, whoever it might be, engaging in atrocities, it's certainly historically substantiated. So if someone cannot at minimum find the possibility plausible I would actually be deeply concerned about their command of U.S. history. I would also actually be deeply concerned about their command of current events geopolitically. So there's one thing to consider, right? And you can see, I invite you to notice, I did not just jump to causality, right? It's really important to acknowledge that just because something is plausible doesn't mean that we actually need to speculate or that we need to immediately presume, right? That means we can jump to some kind of conclusion related to causality, the cause of the thing, right? Next, with that being said, Here's where I encourage us to be humble about our training. So on the flip side of the equation, or on the other hand, right, no matter how compelling the videos that we might have seen online, say, courtesy of the truth movement around the September 11th, 2001 attacks, question, just keeping it humble, are we in a place, say, in terms of professional training, to vet the architectural and the engineering claims made by the 9-11 truther movement? If not, this is important to be honest about. Do you see where I'm going here? So you see the thing on that front is, I have seen plenty of those truther films, and you can hear the way that a specialist in a field that is not your own could be making a case say, related to the engineering of a building, and it can sound plausible. However, so say for myself as a researcher, right, it's incredibly important to know what is beyond the scope of my research, right? If something is outside of a field or a discipline that I actually have a specialization in. And this is just professional ethics 101 for researchers, right? So we can say like, oh yeah, that's plausible, that makes sense. And also I don't have a background as an engineer, so I'm not actually in a place, what's up Caro, good to see you, to be able to vet whether or not those 9-11 truther claims, right, about the US federal government having actually torched those buildings is legit. And so you see what I did there on both sides of the equation, so to speak, and you see how that can potentially soften 
any kind of arrogance that we might have presuming that we know what did or did not happen on that day. And so that kind of right increased capacity for humility and using it multidirectionally like I just did is a gift that'll keep on giving. So I really want to encourage us to consider that. So again, do you see how with both of those moves that I just shared for us to consider, right? One, well, the U.S. federal government has no shame in their game when it comes to executing, assassinating, massacring, murdering innocent folks. So it's certainly plausible that they could have had something to do with that. And I'm actually not in a place to be able to substantiate the veracity or the truth value of the claims of engineers because I'm not an engineer. You see how both of those things can be true at the same time? And do you see how acknowledging, right, both of those truths, right, acknowledging that historical archive and that professional and intellectual humility can really soften, frankly, the vast majority of mainstream conversations about the September 11th, 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center and Building 7. So just wanting to put that out there as a very prominent example that we could begin to think through together. And why don't we actually back up for a minute and also acknowledge when it comes to that thought experiment, what is terrorism again? What does a terrorist look like? And more importantly, who decides? These baseline assumptions are incredibly relevant to what people think they know here and the limits of what folks are capable of knowing, especially if they have yet to unlearn decades of the U.S. war of terror propaganda. People need to be honest about this regularly subjective dimension to conversations about terrorism. For example, you might be familiar with the activist Winona LeDuc's quote, someone needs to explain to me why wanting clean drinking water makes you an activist and why proposing to destroy water with chemical warfare doesn't make a corporation a terrorist. So just to pause and to, again, think through some of what Winona LeDuc is putting out on the table for us here, it's also super important for us to acknowledge, oh, right, we've also got to contend with when it comes to any of these conversations, who's even setting the terms of the debate for us, right? Who even gets to determine how we're using these words, especially if they are as controversial as that of, right, terrorism specifically. And so, how about we get into a few more real-world examples of what gets talked about as conspiracy theories in the U.S. today? And again, as I dive into a few of these specific topics, please do remember that, right, most of the core curricula in the mainstream U.S. today, right, are astoundingly ignorant, right, biases rooted in Eurocentrism, capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy, imperialism, settler colonialism, etc., right? Still that in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. So that level of disinformation is literally at the core of what fronts his education. 
So if we haven't done substantial unlearning of that foundation of fuckery, then some of the following realities, again, might seem implausible, right? Because those biases are tainting anything that we think that we know subsequently moving forward. So let's talk about, say, right, six pretty quasi-libertarian so-called conspiracy theories. And I could share it in getting into them. For years, some of these ideas would come up in the political science courses that I taught from the lower division to the upper division classes. And some of my students who might have been, say, listening to Alex Jones's show were actually on to some interesting ideas, but might have lacked a sound political analysis. So number one, who of y'all have heard people concerned about the idea of a new world order? So my decolonial feminist take on that is that people wouldn't even have to use the language of a new world order or old world order for that matter if they learned about the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the World Trade Organization. We can be more specific in stating our concerns, right? We can be, even if we want to bring in the language of rationalism and empiricism, right? Empirically, what some libertarians that get written off as conspiracy theorists, right, are concerned about using their language of the new world order, for me as someone that was trained as a political science professor, can really write neatly get synced up to what, for example, in a lot of the spaces that I run in gets talked about as globalization. <laughs> and so around that, right, Rachel Jane, oh my God, I can't even wait to listen to this. I'm so sick of psychologists writing articles about conspiracy theory that have zero political analysis. <laughs> can't wait to listen in later. Exactly. Right. And so again, for myself as someone, right, that has been trained to support people in developing a political analysis when I had, right, say maybe young cis white men in my undergrad level poli-sci classes that were like, I was listening to Alex Jones and who's talking about the new world order and that shit seems compelling. What do you think about that prof? To me, it was important to really reinforce and support some of the budding connections that a student is wanting to make in that topic, but while bringing in material geopolitical analysis. And again, if somebody's baseline is, say, a little anti-Semitic, then they might bring in some language of globalism without knowing that maybe what they're talking about is globalization, right? Or would be considered globalization in a whole lot of other spaces, right? Got us saying a new world order terminology started from Cold War rhetoric. Where's that term from? Just wondering if you know. Oh, I wish I could remember right now, but I totally don't. We need to look into that. Uh, and so again, even on that front, if we're really breaking down the constituent parts here. Of course, if somebody hasn't, say, taken an intro to globalization class, you can understand it doesn't take an astounding level of training to see, 
oh, maybe they're grasping for an understanding of geopolitics and of globalization, but they're in an echo chamber where their uncle has them listening to Alex Jones, so instead they're using the word globalism, and instead they're getting caught up in some anti-Semitic trash, but they could be on the brink of actually developing a legit analysis that could be right around the corner and potentially more compelling if they weren't just written off as allegedly crazy, right? Second, how about the right concerns related to eugenics, right, in so-called right libertarian conspiracy theories? So we can see what we could potentially talk about as a eugenics agenda being out in full force, right, amidst this global pandemic, right, of corona. So eugenics has a horrifically racist and classist and anti-Semitic and ageist and ableist history, right, advocating, say, that people who are seen as allegedly weak or allegedly genetically inferior by oppressors should just die, essentially. And so this is something that, again, many people that would understand themselves to be leftists have been super concerned about, for sure, over the course of this Gregorian year of 2020. And so are you starting to see, actually, even with just these couple of examples, right, of a new world order and of eugenics, that actually some of what, say, libertarians, right, or other so-called conspiracy theorists are concerned about are actually alive and well in the world today and actually, right, have robust histories that we could talk about that are real. They're not making shit up. But if folks are just in this kind of, say, centrist Democrat, right, or corporate media echo chamber, of course, they're not necessarily going to hear about any of this. And so it's, again, important if you ask me to acknowledge know that eugenics is definitely something that is real that we need to be concerned about. However, the way that that story is getting spun or narrativized, say, in some libertarian spaces, just doesn't have a sound analysis. So it's like they've got some seedlings that I would really want to encourage people to take seriously, but lack the rigor and the analysis and the historical groundedness and a social awareness, right, to really be able to make sense of what it is that they're grasping being at. How about thirdly, population reduction? This is something that gets written off as a libertarian conspiracy theory on a regular basis. And again, this is something that, say, for decolonial feminists in the academy is a real concern, right? So the whole field of demography, right? This is the origin of where the language of demographics comes from, is so often rooted in this super classist, colonial, sexist, white supremacist panic about black and brown babies in the so-called global south, right? And so this is absolutely something, right, that decolonial feminists all over the world are concerned about, right? Maybe not using the same cultural vocabulary for sure, but if we're making a good faith effort to understand, right, what people are grasping at, then again, my take, one decolonial feminist read on that so-called right, conspiracy theory is that it really merits our attention. 
How about write a few more that we could get into real quick. Digital currency. This is already being advocated right now and for sure in the realm of public health because paper and coin money can write or currency carry disease. But digital currencies are not clean. This is completely problematic for obvious ecological and political reasons. So blockchain tech like Bitcoin is incredibly energy intensive. That's really harmful for the earth and thus unacceptable. Politically, if the principal global currency shifts into the digital space, it is so much more easily surveillable and controllable. For example, PayPal totally cut off funding for WikiLeaks when the U.S. feds told them to. U.S. banks have totally withheld funds from Latin American countries when DC operatives told them to. Are you starting to see how much more vulnerable that makes us? So again, I give thanks that some people at the risk of getting called conspiracy theorists have been putting some of these concerns out for us to consider. Yeah, Tarro sharing, yep, and all the mainstream environmentalists pushing population control as a key tenet of their multi-million dollar work historically and right now. Exactly, right? Again, so many folks, just like with this digital currency sham, right? If you're a tech bro, if you're caught up in techno-optimism, then so many folks are like, well, we're obviously not going to talk about the extractivism of folks and specifically corporations and the military-industrial complex and the U.S. and the rest of the global north. North that are actually responsible for, right, the vast majority of energy emissions, right? So what are we going to do? Just like blame black and brown people for having kids. Like that's the source of all of our environmental woes, right? That's a complete diversionary campaign. It is factually erroneous. And that's still alive and well in so many spaces where folks don't have decolonial feminist analyses and critiques. So we're just about running out of time, so I'm afraid we're not going to be able to really get into, right, martial law or the closing of borders, but I'll bet some of y'all are familiar with those couple of, right, key concerns also being staples in the realm of what gets delegitimated as so-called conspiracy theorists. And do you notice there, right, hyper-policing of communities, right? What, again, some say libertarians lament around in the realm of martial law. What is the critique from the abolitionist movement, right? Of, right, wanting to move from defunding cops to abolishing police as well. That we definitely need to take seriously the militarization of law enforcement, right? Cops and police departments going to Israel to learn from, right, the Israeli Defense Forces, how they fuck over Palestinians so they can be even more effective at their neo-colonialism on Turtle Island today. That is real, 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 real. So again, like other folks have named, right, some of what libertarian conspiracy theorists, quote unquote, are hand ringing about here is actually historically and contemporarily a concern 
for oppressed communities. So again, to take us a little bit more specifically into having a more nuanced bridge building dialogue about these kinds of topics, what I'm much more concerned about is not say that libertarians are making shit up here. It's just that some of their biases and oppressive mentalities actually obscure their capacity to take even more seriously what they're ostensibly concerned about. And you see how that's actually a really different conversation. And so I really want to encourage us to take that seriously, especially if we know folks that are concerned about this, right? And again, the closing of borders, this is something that depending upon how it is framed, is a staple concern of the anti-globalization movement too, right? What gets called the anti-globalization movement, I've got a bit of a critique of that. Although again, I hope that even just starting to scratch the surface of delving into these six examples, right, can support our realizing those aren't outlandish if we're taking seriously the lives of oppressed peoples. And that is partially why I'm horrified to see people just delegitimate so-called conspiracy theorists offhand and not even attempt to build bridges or understand where someone is coming from especially if they might know about something that we don't yet know about. Um, and of course, right, one area where especially those libertarian so-called conspiracy theories fall short is in solutions, what to do about all of these messes. So give thanks, that's not where we need to look in terms of seed planting. We can get into that labor ourselves and draw upon our communities and movements for sure. Uh, and so hopefully another takeaway that might have become somewhat apparent in getting into right, some of this topic today is the following, that right, delving into some of these sort of off-limits areas can actually kind of isolate us from the mainstream. You might have heard that phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, actually, lots is in the eye of the beholder. Perceived legitimacy can also be in the eye of the beholder. What an invitation to consider how legitimacy gets distributed. For example, we know that in the mainstream, folks are delegitimated if we're women, migrants, disabled, not Judeo-Christian, indigenous, people of color, black, LGBT, etc., let alone if we're oppressed based off of multiple aspects of our social location simultaneously, like citizenship, ability, indigeneity, etc. So when people are perceiving from varying worldviews and languages, what's the likelihood that someone coming from a hegemonic worldview is going to be able to hear us? So it's important to acknowledge, right, that that pathologizing, that belittling, that gaslighting, it's alive and well. We can anticipate it from a mile away. So to be able to continue to engage in our process of consciousness raising, I really invite us to be intentional around doing some visioning and strategizing around those phenomena so that they don't end up being an impediment to us continuing to learn and unlearn and grow, right? So even, right, for theory head 
heads that need to invoke certain voices to be heard, say, in the academic industrial complex. Jacques Ranciere had a core premises, right? Uh, premise that politics is actually the distribution of the sensible, right? Again, what was Ranciere's understanding of politics? That politics is about how the notion of something being sensible gets distributed. So there's a lot for us to unpack there, especially if we have been, say, impacted by corporate media programming, where so often legit conspiracies like Russiagate are touted as, right, real news in a way that, right, so often just say, Let's people like the Clintons off the hook for not being interesting to millions of people, right? Let's maybe white women, Americans, right, who felt some sense of entitlement to a white woman being in the White House as president, right, to not engage in any kind of critical self-reflexivity related to why, right, the last settler presidential election in part turned out the way that it did. Uh, and so how very interesting for us to really pause to be able to discern and to parse out what's going on with that kind of mainstream narrativizing. And if there is, right, a uh, little bit more, right, openness to really take seriously some of what's at stake here, if you're down to kick down a little bit more labor, there's another article that does merit unpacking, if you ask me, that's called... Even when black conspiracy theorists are misguided, they are not nonsensical. And similarly to the Wired article that I broke down a little bit of earlier, there's unfortunately still right a bit of right kind of default colonial mentality within this article right or gaslighting or pathologizing and it's one instance of people starting to move towards at least an attempt to understand folks that so often just get totally cast aside and written off as so-called conspiracy theorists and actual, right, modes of perception, right, or suppressed history that so often can also just get writ large cast aside as alleged conspiracy theories. So in closing... Power to the conspiracy theorists and lunatics. I'd like to give a shout out to the so-called conspiracy theorists who often bravely put concerns on the table for their communities to consider. They are so often really disrespectfully gaslit. Who knows, maybe decades from now, their observations will be vindicated within the mainstream when we finally catch up to what they have been alerting us to this whole time. So like, say, prior to Naomi Klein's shock doctrine, the rise of disaster capitalism coming out a dozen years ago, right, my ex in college who had for years been talking about MK Ultra and had received so much shit-talking and delegitimation from folks and then all of a sudden, Professor Naomi Klein writes this book where she's kicking down exactly what they were saying about MKUltra and everyone and their grandmother in the mainstream wants to act like they already knew. We don't need to be that guy. We can divest 
from the mainstream's illusions to clarify perceptual baselines that are aligned for us. We can unlearn whatever may have been clouding our perception in the form of white supremacist, imperialist, cis-heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial propaganda that would have us unable to perceive power dynamics, unable to perceive beyond mainstream corporate media echo chambers, taking our comprehension of reality back into our own hands, shedding the crazy making, embracing our non-normative brilliance, and gaslighting the systems that are banking off of us doubting our truest perceptions of reality. So if you found this material at all beneficial, please consider sharing out and if possible, kicking down a financial donation to Liberation Spring via PayPal or Patreon. You can use liberationspring at gmail.com via PayPal or you can find us on Liberation Spring at Patreon. We can stay honest because we don't have foundation funding, grants, or any institutional affiliation. I can say these things because institutional and financial independence allows me to say things that my colleagues who are still in the academic industrial complex are much less likely to say because of some of the rampant censorship that we just started to scratch the surface of today and that we have been successively building out an analysis of over the course of this season together. That means that I need your support in order to continue to share this kind of insurgent intellectual production that can be 100% accountable to our collective liberation. So as we are closing out, I also want to share a little bit of a disinformation dare, an activity for folks that might be down. What if, say, just today, or maybe even every day for the next week, what if you presumed that you were going to be subjected to, let's say, at least one piece of disinformation, and you don't know where it's going to come from. Could be on TV, could be via an app, maybe on social media, in a dialogue with a loved one, and you're capable of spotting that disinformation to the benefit of our collective liberation and consciousness. And the primary way to do that is practicing discernment, critical thinking, paying attention, focusing, clarifying your perception, being in touch with your instinct and intuition, maybe even witnessing your dreamscape for those of y'all that have such a practice. What might you notice and how would you engage in any kind of fact-checking or collective discernment for the benefit of all of us were you to see, say, even just one piece of disinfo a day every day for the next week? Well, we're just about out of time for today. Thank you all for listening. And, you know, I look forward to hopefully continuing to weed and to seed with y'all next week. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadhyay, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. 
I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. The power of the people is louder than the evil. Deceitful and coward, people in power. Our power to the people is the hour of the peaceful. Freedom is ours, yeah. Freedom is ours. <laughs>